It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more. The fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. This is a game day podcast from Talk Sport. Hello, football friends. 94 days since the last Premier League game and you only have six more to wait before the festival of football explodes. Jean Macias has said play on. It comes back to Pepe, who rifles it in. And it goes beyond David De Gea and Arsenal get the lead. Salah steps away from David Luiz. Leaves him as if he wasn't there. Still Mo Salah, 3-0. Brilliant, brilliant individual goal. And to celebrate, inform and accompany the forthcoming flood of football, Game Day's preview pod will be coming to you twice a week from now on in order to help you navigate a course through the sea of soccer. Uh, as such, the volume and frequency is so big at the moment, Crook and I can't possibly do it all on our own, so we have recruited one of the nation's most articulate, informed, charismatic and soothing football journalists to help us out. <laughs> uh, also this week, Stuart Pierce relives Italia 90, and the man renowned for the toughest pre-season regimes in the business, former Stoke, West Brom and Borough boss Tony Pulis, tells us if he thinks a lack of prep time will be costly. There's no substitute for, for playing football matches my big thing would have been that strength and conditioning making sure that they, they came back in a way um, that they were strong enough to be able to compete in games and not break down La Liga kicks off as well this week so we'll bring you a bit of Spanish heat from the capital of Flamenco all on the podcast that has already started knee sliding across the grass taking our shirts off only to remember too late that we left our She-Ra pyjama top on underneath it's the game day podcast from TalkSport this is game day. I do love a little bit of Shira. Uh, hello to Talksport News Guru and the man who that gets himself on more shows than Laura Woods. I think it's Alex Crowbar Crook. Hello. Hello. Do you know what? By a strange coincidence, my ten-year-old daughter was watching Shira the other day. It made me feel really old. I love Shira. I think it's a fantastic show. Uh, and the man who is going to be the Game Day Podcast's uh, answer to Rude Hullet and Viali. Chelsea 1990s reference uh, Bruno Fernandes Three. Uh, and what he's going to be like to Manchester United what Timo Werner will be to Frank Lampard stuff it I'm going to go there the game day pods Dennis Burkamp, although he will fly it's one of the country's top print journalists from the mirror and all round smooth operator it's Darren Lewis <laughs> ah, coast to coast LA to Chicago Chicago do you know uh, I'm old enough to remember the second part of Shira's uh, nom de guerre, if you like. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it, she was Shira, Princess of Power. Oh yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, you well yeah. done. I thought you were going to say I was. Nice. I'm old enough to be able to uh, say that I owned that Sade album, <laughs> which which I did. Well, my mum did. did. I sort of I, I sort of 
listen to her music really i remember when she was a young teenager breaking onto the scene i'm a little bit worried by how <laughs> how much i remember about charlotte's career to be fair <laughs> welcome along Darren, by the way so uh, listen thank you very much for for, for joining us because uh, in the last year this this show sort of evolved we've had a rotating cast we've had ex-players we naturally found our rhythm with crook and i over lockdown but now football is coming back uh, we we need an extra pair of hands we were allowed an extra pair of hands someone who can uh, help us inform and educate and provide a little bit of detail um can you tell our listeners what you're going to bring fun <laughs> uh, but but no i'll be serious i, I think um i hopefully i'm going to bring you a little bit of insight and the way we work in newspapers in terms of the stories that we know the stories that we can't sometimes bring to uh, the national attention some of the stuff from behind the scenes in mixed zones in the areas of the stadium where you guys obviously operate away from us, but we still do get quite good stories that I think your listeners will be very, very intrigued to know a little bit about. So hopefully over the coming season, we'll be able to have a little bit of fun with that. Do you like goats? I love goats. (laughs) You, listen, if you if you want if you want to be in this podcast, you've got to like goats. It's just as simple <laughs> as that. Uh, right, let's get to the Premier League. And this week, Raheem Sterling took to Newsnight to articulate his thoughts on racial bias in football. Gareth Southgate did a widespread interview where he talked about white privilege and getting opportunities in his career. He didn't think were afforded to ex-black players. Uh, Darren, Alex, um, we have a generation of young black players now who are very good at articulating their thoughts and feelings on this subject, which has been skirted around for years. Will it lead to change? Well, I hope so. As I've probably mentioned on this podcast, I've spent the last few weeks during lockdown compiling a book called about Arsenal's greatest games and I've spoken to quite a few of their former players. And, and one interview that stands out, maybe among all others, uh, is Paul Davis. And he was talking to me about racism in the 1980s, and in particular, a game he played at Stamford Bridge where... Basically, as um, every black player on the pitch was abused by the Chelsea fans. Um, and, and he said it really struck him because Chelsea actually had their own black player on the bench that day in Paul Canneville, uh, who, as we know, has gone on to to, to become a, a campaigner for a, a change, uh, you know, against racism. And he was scared to speak out, Paul Davis. He said, did you not feel like you could, you know, put your head above the parapet and, and say this is wrong? And he said it was just an accepted part of the game, an accepted part of society. The fact that we've got people now, um, 30 years on, like Raheem Sterling, who isn't afraid to speak out, to use his standing in the game, to take to social media, to go on to Newsnight, I think that can only be a positive thing. And, and hopefully that will right some of the wrongs that people like Paul Davis had to just tolerate in the past because, as he said, it was accepted. Darren, how concerning is it, though, that we've been waiting 30 years for, 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 for people to feel comfortable enough to be able to do that? Or even worse than that, even when people were comfortable about it, it's taken this long for people to start listening and paying attention. Well, uh, do you know, Sam, I, I almost prefer to look at the impact and the significance of what Gareth Southgate has said than Raheem Sterling because Mm. Sterling is one of a number of players who has spoken out about the imbalance over the years but the game hasn't been willing to listen I think what Gareth Southgate said this week is the most significant development on this issue in decades I I really do because to recognise that there is that structural bias in football is massive if the England manager does it then other managers and chairmen 
will realize that it is an issue. And before now, the game hasn't listened enough. If I know in some areas of the interview, and just for the listeners to, to understand, he did a sit down with a number of the chief football writers. And I know some of them wanted to press him on, will you take your players off the pitch if you have racist abuse again? Whether he does or he doesn't is immaterial, really, because it's beyond that. As everyone's been identifying, this issue is structural. It's within the game. It isn't about the bananas and then monkey chanting and the uh, offensive names. but It's about the chances that people don't get in management. And you mentioned Paul Davis, I think. Or was it yourself, Crooksy? Forgive, forgive me. I actually interviewed Paul Davis when he wanted a job as a manager, uh, when he was very much in the game and he couldn't get one. And Paul's one of a number of black ex-pros who couldn't get jobs. Some of them actually turned around to me and said, actually, don't run it because I don't want to jeopardize my position that I've got at the moment. That's how scared they were about talking out. The significance now of the, the top players who know that you can't sideline them because they're too good. You can't force them out of the game because if you drum them out of your team, another team will take them. That too is massive. But what Southgate said this week I went from being a little bit underwhelmed from what he refused to commit to in terms of taking his players off the pitch, then thinking, well, it doesn't really matter anyway because people now are very empowered and they don't need a Southgate to say this. But for Southgate to say what he did about the fact that he got his job on the basis of being a white guy, that was massive. I don't think people realise just how big that was. And I think that's going to spark a massive sea change. I'm hoping it will within the industry. I saw a powerful image ahead of the Borussia Dortmund-Hertha Berlin game at the weekend where all 22 players, coaches and staff all took the knee before kickoff. It wasn't something actually I was expecting. I'd seen other players do it. We'd seen Liverpool and Chelsea do it at training and the aerial photographs of that. And I thought it was a really powerful image. Is it something that we should look at doing in the Premier League that could replace the handshake? Or would it be quickly, and something that sort of Raheem sort of alluded to on Newsnight the other night, becomes sort of like a token gesture. It's just sort of like doing it for doing its sake rather than worrying about what you're talking about, which is the structural change, Darren. Yeah, I I have to be honest. I I think once Liverpool did it, that was it. Uh, We've seen clubs doing it. um, and, And to be clear, Sam, you know, I look at Liverpool, I look at Chelsea, I see two team, two clubs that have worked incredibly hard to acknowledge the things that they've got wrong in the past and to, to educate their fan bases. I know a lot of people say, oh, how dare they do that when they had Suarez and Chelsea with all the problems that they've had. But as clubs, they've recognised it and they've done the work. So uh, I think when they do it, I understand that they feel they must do it. They must continue with that solidarity, if you like. But I think eventually it loses the impact with the other clubs that do it. And I would prefer, it doesn't really bother me one way or another whether the other Premier League teams do it next weekend. Having been around for 20 years in Fleet Street and seen token gestures come and go, I would now prefer to see the other teams making a commitment to, to giving black players the opportunities they deserve in the game, the entire game, making a, a firm commitment to giving black, not a Rooney rule, but considering players on their merits. And when you look at the many players, both you know, you guys, you both know the many players that have done massive things in the game, they were falling over themselves to give Paul Scholes a job 
when he hung up his boots. Why was that not the case for an Ian Wright or a Rio Ferdinand? Even if they wanted to go into a TV studio, ask them the question. Because when you see what they've done, when you see their commercial appeal, when you hear their ideas on football, you realise that you're talking about two outstanding football brains. And yet we're losing guys season after season, generation after generation because of this structural bias within the game. So I think we've got an opportunity now and I think we'll waste it if we go for token gestures of a real change. Now, we are less than a week away from returning to the Premier League with clubs up and down the country adhering to strict protocols in order to get the resumption underway. But what happens to all that planning if someone in a key position tests positive for COVID-19? Well, that's what happened to Stoke manager Michael O'Neill just before his side were due to play a friendly against Manchester United at Carrington. And Michael came on this podcast last week and, you know, there was obviously no signs at the time that we spoke to him that he was suffering at all. And as far as I understand it, he's asymptomatic and hasn't really shown any signs of the infection, but he has tested positive and then will now have to go into a period of self-isolation. I suppose this is the, the situation that football is going to find itself in because if that's a star player, if that is, you know, a Harry Kane, a Marcus Rashford, a Raheem Sterling, a Sergio Aguero in the next week or so, that player is not going to be able to play in the first batch of games. And do we have to just accept that we're going to lose players to an injury, which is COVID-19? And I know you guys have both talked to players about this. I, I remember speaking to Troy Deeney a couple of weeks ago when I interviewed him and he said, look, clubs are going to just have to treat that like an injury. Now, I actually disagreed with him because I I said, well, hang on, you beat Liverpool. You were the first team in the Premier League to beat Liverpool. If you hadn't had key players available, that would not have been possible. Because the point I also made to him was that was why I felt the integrity of the Premier League had been materially affected. And he said, look, the the integrity of the league has gone ages ago. This is not the same competition mm. it was when it end when it came to an abrupt end in the second week of March. You know, Tottenham's players are all fit again. This is my opinion, not not Troy's. Um, it, there are clubs that were doing badly that have had a chance to regroup. There were clubs that were doing particularly well that will have lost their momentum. So uh, it, it's it's a comp- and of course we're going to go beyond July. It, it could well be. And as you started off saying, Sam, there are going to be teams who are going to not have their managers available. Do you know what? In a way, I I wonder if this could be a blessing in disguise because it's all been a bit too smooth. You know, maybe we're tempted to ease up a bit on the lockdown restrictions. This is still a serious threat. You know, there are going to be bumps in the road here. It isn't going to go as swimmingly as we hoped. And I think think Darren's dead right. and, And maybe it brings into question again, should we really be relegating teams this season when the integrity has gone and when we're almost talking about a season within a season, I think there is a definite case to say, look, there is no relegation. We're just going to sort out the championship and the European place. And I think you can filter that down. I mean, with Tranmere in particular, you have to feel bitterly sorry for them to relegate a team on points per game when there's 10 matches to play. To put it into context, if you'd done that with Leicester City, they'd never have gone on to win the Premier League. And we would have been denied one of the greatest sporting stories of all time. I don't see why we couldn't have just frozen relegation this season, have promotion if you want, and just have different numbers of teams in the league and, and then change the perimeters 
from next season and maybe not even next season because there's no guarantee that you're going to be allowed fans in the stadium next season. Worth pointing out as well that Tramia were on a great run of form prior to lockdown and were actually averaging a much higher degree of points per game and therefore were in a good position to to, to possibly save themselves. So, uh, listen, uh, the the problem is, is that, and as the EFL chairman has already pointed out, there, there is no satisfactory way of proceeding and no satisfactory way of curtailing a season. But it is a situation that we have to deal with. We have to come up with something. There are going to be winners and losers in this scenario. What worries me is that, that, that there is going to be a legal threat that which is going to hang over the league. I don't think is particularly edifying and also may well cause problems going into next season. Also this week, transfer rumours abound. There's been no official announcement that Timo Werner is going to join Chelsea yet, but that seems to be on his uh, on his way. I mean, he, I think he's already bought an A to Z. He's started to uh, uh, apply for his Oyster card. Um, let's be honest, it's a little bit of a surprise, uh, but a welcome one, I must say. Klopp hinting that morally couldn't spend that sort of money in a pandemic. Is that it? Or could they not afford him? Or could they not offer him guaranteed first-team football? Or did they not actually fancy him that much? Or is it a little bit of all of the above? I'm a little bit of a sceptic. I, I think it's a convenient excuse from Jurgen Klopp that morally we can't do this. And listen, you know, there is some credence to that. But actually, I think Liverpool just haven't got the financial resources to make the transfer happen. Is that what you think, Darren? I don't, actually. I, I, I think that they have seen something that they don't think works. Their recruitment so far has been outstanding. Exemplary. Ex- honestly, exemplary. And I think they have always managed. I, I, I remember in the season before Virgil van Dijk, who came in the January and Alisson came yep. in the summer. Yeah. But in the early part of the season, they signed van Dijk. People were questioning whether uh, FSG were gonna were giving Klopp the investment that he wanted. And people were raising those kinds of concerns. And then they went out and said, there you go. So I think when they want a player, they get him. And I think they've seen something about Timo. Listen, before people listening to this get carried away, he looks a terrific player. His goal record is outstanding. He's a rapid player. I spoke to a German player earlier this week and he said he's so fast Mm. and he's got such good composure in front of goals. So I think he'll be a good player for Chelsea. I just think Liverpool looked at something about him or maybe about whether they could integrate him into their team structure and decided maybe not, maybe we can't. And that's the reason, because I think if they wanted him, they'd have got him. 52.7 million quid is, is is a very cheap price for what is seen as potentially Europe's next elite striker. Obviously, it was to do with the fact that they had a release clause in it, which expired in the next few days. But do you think overall we're going to see, as a result of this pandemic, transfer fees drop? Or is that another thing that we talk about because of the seriousness of this situation? But actually, when it materialises, everyone will still earn the same. Everyone will still end up getting uh, you know, wages going up and up and up and up over time. The best players will still get paid even more. And, and transfer fees will still explode because at the end of the day, the, the, the players are the commodities. They are the stars. They attract the eyeballs. The mere fact that we've seen a club willing to lavish 50 odd million pound on a player before the season has even resumed and, you know, before we know the full extent 
of how the pandemic is going to affect the game probably suggest that actually there's a bit of lip service being paid by clubs saying, oh, transfer fees are going to come down. Take Southampton, for example, on my patch. They've decided they want £35 million for Pierre-Emil Hoybier, their captain, uh, who is out of contract and would be available on a free transfer this time next year anyway. Is he worth 35 million quid? I know he started at Bayern Munich and he was well, pet, this is pet my project point. at one stage, but 35 million quid for a, for a geezer who's almost been relegated in every other season that he's been at, at St Mary's seems a bit strange. Sam, if they sell him for 35 million pounds, I'd like them to sell my house. <laughs> I, I might not get become, 35 they'll get 25 maybe 30 I, I think we've been, I think we've uh, become far too patient in lockdown I'd, I'd wait I'd wait too if you look at clubs in Germany you look at your Dortmunds particularly your Bayern Munichs you look at the number of players that they've managed to spirit away from clubs on mm. free transfers absolute bargains and you realise that that's the way to do good business patience I, I, he's a good player but is he a 35 million pound player really And sometimes you have to question the recruitment of clubs that aren't prepared to maybe think outside the box, Mm. uh, maybe look outside the usual territories, maybe exercise a little bit of patience and save money instead of going in hard. And also, I think some clubs, I don't know if you agree with this, Alex, I think some clubs might well lose the goodwill and the patience and the sympathy of people who were very sympathetic when they were talking about the potential financial crisis that the game was facing. When you're seeing clubs going out paying £35 million for a good player, but not a great player, and then you know you look at the likes of the, the superstars like Jadon Sancho, who will cost and Kai Havertz, you know, you're talking £80, £100 million for those players. When those players start moving for those sums of money, people will start to forget about all of these claims about a potential financial crisis. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrooks. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Well, some of the crowd are on the pitch. Well, some of the crowd are on the pitch. They think it's all over, but it is now. Side the Germans and they're in trouble. Alvin Tyler couldn't do it. Lineker probably could. And he would have equalised. It's Gary Lineker. 
do it, Pierce, who's uh, done the job for Nottingham Forest. Can he do it for England? This is the Game Day Premier League preview from TalkSport with Sam Matterface, Alex Crook and Darren Lewis. Uh, this week, it's 30 years since the start of Italia 90. Gazza's tears, Lineker's wink to the bench, last gasp goals against Belgium, Cameroon and a whole nation gripped and a penalty shootout heartbreak, obviously. Stuart Pearce was in the midst of it all. Hello, Stuart. How are you? Okay. Uh, yeah, we're all good. Um, look, obviously, you and I have, have spent a lot of time uh, together and we've talked about this a, a few times, but for those that don't know, take me back to pre-tournament days, just before you start the World Cup in, in 1990. Do you think at that point you've got a shot at winning the World Cup? It was a difficult one because it's my first major tournament, albeit I was 25 years old, but my first major tournament. So in all honesty, I didn't really know what to expect going to a World Cup. You think to yourself, well, I probably didn't think that it would be my one and only World Cup that I participated in, to be fair. And that was the case for the England team for the next eight years, you know, so... Uh, it was a little bit of the unknown. I don't think we even thought about going there and being victors at the World Cup, if I'm being quite honest with you. It's just going, I think the first port of call is to get out the group and see where it takes you. We went there, there was crowd trouble and a, a lot of talk about maybe pulling the team out if there was crowd violence, that type of thing. So it, it wasn't a great time for football at the time either, you know, off the pitch. A couple of the iconic images, obviously, uh, Paul Gascoigne in, in tears during the semi-final and Paul Gascoigne uh, returning to the airport and the scenes of jubilation at reaching the semi-finals, putting on the, the, the fake breasts. I mean, how integral was he to the team? And, and did you know at the start of the tournament that he would be as good as he would then go on to be during the campaign? Well, firstly, I'm not sure those breasts were actually fake. They were actually <laughs> <laughs> Let's, let's establish that straight away. Um, we knew we had a talent in our hands. I'm really lucky, I've got to say, in my international career, most of the time was spent on the same pitch as Gascoigne, who, in my opinion, has been the best we've probably had since Bobby Charlton. So uh, I was fortunate enough to play alongside one of the best, if not the best players that, that England have turned out. He really cut, we knew he was a talent going into the uh, tournament, but he really established himself as a world-class player, as did Des Walker, I believe, you know. Mm. Uh, shortly after the tournament, Des was, uh, Forrest were offered five million from Juventus for Des and they turned it down, you know, so, uh, which at the time was a hell of a lot of money. So the pair of them really nailed their colours to the mast, as did Lineker as well, scoring the goals that he did. So a couple of players did, but, but Gaza more than most, let's say. Stuart, my antenna goal, you can tell the difference between the, the football commentator and the journalist here. 
I just wanted to know how close we came and how much you as players knew about it and whether it disrupted your preparations. Uh, I'm not sure it disrupted our preparation in any way, uh, but the one thing it did do, we were acutely aware that there was a mentality, let's say, for people above football, sport ministers and, and whatever, they wouldn't tolerate any problems from the English fans and they would be quite happy to pull the English football team out on the back of if there was any crowd problems in Italy, you know. So um, I don't think we had, it was my perception that, you know, I think it was Colin Moynihan and whatever sports minister at the time mm. and one or two other. I don't think we had a great deal of support back home from the ministers that, that weren't going to tolerate crowd trouble and crowd violence and the like. And there was a an almost a standoff as well amongst some of the players and the media. So it was really, it wasn't a great environment. I look at it now and, and you know, we all followed the team in 2018 and the support that everyone, I, I felt as though from the journalistic core, I'm, I'm part of that myself now, to, to to all and sundry were right behind the team and the squad yeah. and desperate for us to do well. I don't think that was particularly the case back in 1990, to be quite honest with you. Right. But mentality and the move for the tournament totally changed afterwards, you know, when you consider there was a quarter of a million people at Luton Airport to greet a team that yeah. had been beaten in the semi-final, which is... I'm not sure it happened in any other country of the world, if I'm being honest with you. You talked about the relationship between the, the media and the team. And I, I remember even when I started covering England, um, and there, there, there was that edge, the first two World Cups I covered. And that's now really changed, thanks for the fantastic work that the FA have done. But can you just talk us through that period, what it was like, where... It was us and them, wasn't it? And it, it was fascinating to watch for what? Probably a decade and a half. Yeah, it, it literally was us and them. And, and, you know, I see it from both sides now because obviously I've been a player at the forefront of it and, and part of the, the England coaching setup at, at World Cups as well, as well as obviously now um, supporting the team as a journalist covering for TalkSport and whatever for the last three, four tournaments. Um, there was... Going into the 1991, I think a lot of the players took a little bit of umbrage that Bobby Robson had, had taken a lot of flack going into that tournament. We all knew that he was going to retire after the tournament. There was a, a great deal of respect for everybody from the players' point of view for Bobby. So that was, was part of it. And I just feel as though it, it was probably more so from the players that sort of done a lot of work with the media, if you like, the antagonism, you know, I myself and probably Des and one or two from Fox were were a bit nonplussed about doing media stuff. We did, we really weren't bothered about whether we done it or whether we didn't do it. To be quite honest with you, so it, it sort of washed over us in many ways. But there, there was, I know, there was a real bad feeling in regard to certainly from the players towards the media, and that had built up probably leading into the tournament and, and probably festered over maybe a year or two years or even longer. Certainly, there was a poor shot at the 88 European Championships, which caught it a lot of, of, of bad press in many ways, you know. Can I talk a little bit about the moment at the end of the Germany game? Obviously, there were iconic images of Gaza and his tears, but there's also you in tears after your penalty troubles and the way you reacted to that. How did you make your peace with it? 
I'm not sure you make your peace with it, Sam. I mean, we that was the last kick of a ball I ever had at a World Cup. I didn't realise it at the time. I never kicked another ball at a World Cup. It just shows that if, if you're passing sort of advice on to the next generation of England players, you, when you turn around and say, make the most of it, because you never know when, when the next day is going to come. That was my only contribution at a World Cup, you know, over 12 years of international football. So, um, for me, it was a case really of, we felt as though we had a mentality that if we got past this hurdle, the semi-final, the final might be slightly easier on paper, certainly, than um, than the semi-final. We were getting better as a team. Uh, our performances were improving. Probably the best performance of the tournament was the German performance. Um, and players were growing in confidence. And to be fair, we knew that Bobby was retiring as well. And I think... He gave me my first cap, and up to that day, all 20-odd caps that I earned for England were under Bobby Robson, and the same with Gascoigne and Walker and various other players owed a lot to Bobby. Bobby had been manager since 82, I think, you know, so he'd give a lot of players their first caps, so there was a real buy-in towards him, so... You know, it, it was a major, major body blow for us to go out at the st- that stage of the tournament, adding all those things in the mix. Because in a parallel world, we could be sitting here talking to you as a World Cup winner and a European champion. Do you think if you'd have won both semi-finals in 1990 and Euro 96, England would have won both finals? There's every chance I would have been knighted by now and not spent <laughs> And you wouldn't be spending every, every, other, every other day with me. <laughs> Now, the Bundesliga has reported a 250% increase in injuries in the resumption period and with warnings from fitness coaches and sports physiotherapists that the same could happen in the Premier League. We thought, why not ask the king of pre-seasons, former Bournemouth, Palace, West Brom, Stoke and Borough boss Tony Pulis about what he would have been doing if uh, he had to manage in a truncated build-up to a, a resumption of a season. Uh, but first of all, I asked him uh, what he's been doing in lockdown. Notoriously, you are um, a fitness fanatic. Let's say this: I, I remember you being in uh, at one of the tournaments and making whoever it was you would you were paired up with as a commentator go out for a run every day. Um, have, have you yeah. been do- Have you been doing your, your your daily exercise? Oh yeah, I don't, I've got a little gym in the house, so I'm I'm down there six o'clock every morning, um, and we go out. We obviously we're very fortunate where we live, so we go out uh, and walk every day. Um, and with the grandchildren, you know, being able to come over now and then, we, you know, we're out with them all the time as well, Sam. So, yeah, I keep myself busy, keep myself occupied. And um, you've done quite a bit of media, haven't you? Do you enjoy doing that? Yeah, I, do, I don't, I don't mind, Sam. It's, um, I prefer the radio. Um, I think um, you, you, you're much more in touch with the game, and you know, it's, it's really enjoyable. Um, I find that uh, the radio people are are so much more prepared as well. You know, they, you know, they've got no screens to look back on things, and and you know, there's there's no second chance for them. You know, the quality in this country of uh, of the radio and the commentary is absolutely first class. That for me, Sam. No, 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 no. You're well up there. <laughs> what's what's the future? What's the future going to hold for you? Are you going to concentrate on that now, or is it just getting back in as soon as possible? No, I, I, Sam. I, I, you know, I spent eighteen months when I signed my contract at uh, at the borough with Steve. It was for eighteen months. You know, I got on really well with Steve. Steve's a really, really top 
guy and I enjoyed the football club. The football club, just smashing football club. And they have, they have some, well, the, the people there are just wonderful. You know, they, the way they looked after us, the way they treated us is, is just, you know, it's absolutely first class. Couldn't speak too highly of, uh, of the football club. Um, but it was a long way away, Sam, from where I live. Um, and just before I went into Middlesbrough, I, I, we were talking about having a break then and, and, you know, taking stock of everything. After the Middlesbrough job, um, coming back, we, we decided to do that, or I decided to do that. And we've travelled around. I've been to South Africa for a month. I've been to America twice. And then going over, obviously, my son has just joined Miami. So it was nice to go out and see him. He's just moved into a new place down in Fort Lauderdale. We're extremely keen to see our two grandchildren over there as well. You were one of the youngest ever people to get a, a, an A licence um, and, and you're known for your challenging fitness regimes ahead of new seasons. How concerned would you be about players going back to full matches after only a limited period of training? Well, I think if, if the clubs have done it right, and I'm sure they, they, they have done it right, the, the, the most important thing really was to make sure they kept their, their strength and conditioning uh, regimes up. Um, there's no substitute for, for playing football matches. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see how many games these clubs can get in before the, they, they you know, reboot the season. My big thing would have been that strength and conditioning, making sure that they, they came back in a way um, that they were strong enough to be able to compete in games and not break down. Um, there's no substitute for games. There's nothing you can put, you can put on uh, that replicates people's uh, running stats in, in games. So, you know, the strength and conditioning would have been massive for me, Sam. Would, would you have done what Frank Lampard has done, where he played at Stamford Bridge with a, an A and a B team, all in full kit, and what uh, Arsenal did, maybe a range of friendly with a, a local side, in order to get as many of these practice matches in before Project Restart kicks into gear? Because, as you say, there is no replication. Yeah, very much so. I, th- I think, you know, that, that, them coming back, you know, the, uh, how long was it from that last game did they have off? So, so during that time, Sam, my big, my big thing to, to the sports scientists and to the players who, w- who weren't allowed to come in and train um, together and collectively would have been these programmes which would have maintained you know, their strength and their conditioning work. Because the thing that, that, that you don't want, and I know it's been talked about, is players coming back in, playing at, at, at 100% in games, and sprinting, turning, jumping, you know, everything that's connected, kicking balls, everything connected with it. And your muscles not being strong enough. Or obviously, Sam, you've talked about my fitness regimes. I certainly would have tested them and made sure that they were at a level in, in respect to strength and conditioning that would be acceptable to get them playing games as, as quickly as possible. Tony Pulis uh, talking about the resumption of the Premier League and the challenges that players are going to face. He seems to think that um, the players are professional enough to ensure that they will uh, be fit and ready to go. Darren? I agree. I, I think that the players will have been... We've seen a lot of the Zoom sessions that the players have been having with managers. Uh, I know we spoke to 
Jose Mourinho, we spoke to David Moyes and we saw the, the moves that they were making to ensure that the players were kept up to their work. But they'll also know that they don't want, and they've had conversations in those meetings with the Premier League about it, they don't want to have a situation where they come back and players are dropping like flies so they'll be working extra hard. The one thing that did strike me about what Tony said was that he was pleased the Premier League is going to finish, and I am too. I think we, and, and funnily enough, my opinion has, has kind of changed from the start of the lockdown when obviously things were much more grim outside of our sport, but things have stabilised, if, if probably that's the right word. Um, and I think as a sport, if I just focus on the sport, you must have a resolution to a campaign if the next one is to mean anything. And the next one can take part whenever uh, take place whenever but we you know it would have been a crime if Liverpool were not given the chance to complete what's been an outstanding season and if Sheffield United don't get the chance to compete for the Champions League as well Who do you support Darren? Liverpool <laughs> <laughs> I literally just walked into a haymaker there didn't I <laughs> I actually answered the question <laughs> When I should have just stayed diplomatically silent. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done, Alex. Oh, dear. You know what I can't wait for? I can't wait to get into the queue for my press pass uh, in the rain at Manchester City's Academy. I can't, wa- I can't wait for that, that 1.5 kilometre walk over the bridge from the Academy into the stadium. Um, I can't. I, I can't wait to avoid all the hospitality and all the catering. Uh, I can't wait to sit on my own in my seat with my face mask on, uh, overlooking the Etihad Tunnel, and unpack my salmon paste sandwiches that I bought myself to the ground and eat with my plastic gloves on whilst watching the footballers warm up, sanitize my hands, come back, watch a live game. I know I'm being a little bit facetious here, but what I'm really trying to say is, is despite the fact that it is going to be remarkably different going to cover football in this new post-COVID world or or during COVID world, um, I'm still bubbling with a bit of excitement. Now, Darren, I know obviously with your loyalties, you're bubbling with a bit of excitement (laughs) as well. (laughs) But what, what are you looking forward to most? I'm looking forward to seeing how it will work. Um, because I think it'll be strange and it has been strange watching the German league but I think the quality in the Premier League is higher and I I think that the unpredictability of the Premier League is higher as well and so I still think the action will be better and that's what I'm most looking forward to the action and seeing the teams that had the chance to complete a fairy tale and you know to be fair Liverpool I still would regard it as a fairy tale but Sheffield United as well I'm particularly interested in so the action in a word in two words the action oh that fairy tale it's a Cinderella <laughs> story isn't it rags to riches <laughs> Crook what are you looking forward to most um, well I'm looking forward to Brighton and Bournemouth staying up uh, for purely selfish reasons I'm looking forward to seeing Bruno Fernandes who I think is going to be a player who will thrive um, mm. in the empty stadium behind closed door environment because I think what we have seen in the German league is that the better technical players the better technical teams the teams who can keep the ball and pass it are the ones who are coming out on top um, and uh, is, he, is, he, is he the, the kind of player that you would describe in, the, in that category? 
Yeah, I think he's a, a very gifted technical footballer, absolutely. And I think for that reason, you know what? You know, it might be the surprise package, and this this isn't with my South Coast hat on. Oh, go on. Bournemouth have got all their players back now. Uh, David Brooks is back from injury. He's going to make a massive difference. Mm. They are a team who like to pass the ball around. Perhaps the home crowd getting on their back haven't helped at times this season. So again, in that empty stadium environment, don't be surprised if Eddie Howe's side pick up a few results that you wouldn't otherwise expect them to. All the players back. It's the same with Tottenham though, isn't it? It's the same with Manchester United as well. Yeah. It's even in some circumstances, it might well affect Chelsea, although N'Golo Conte is apparently back in, in full training. I think the, the key thing is though, and I think I've noticed this from watching the Bundesliga, Darren, is the teams that are well coached. It's the teams that have a clear plan. It's it's those who have got the figurehead who knows exactly what they want and knows how to get it out of his players that has that time on the training ground that isn't usually available to them that have come off the bench. I mean, I look at Hertha Berlin, a team that couldn't, a team that we adopted on this podcast, mm. that couldn't put together two results in a row over the course of the earlier part of the season, had four different coaches, including Jurgen Klinsmann. They get a, a seasoned professional coaching over the lockdown period. And during that period, he does a hell of a lot of work. He gets them fitter, he gets them sharper, he gets them well organised. I, I, I think those coaches will succeed more than the... The, the, the overarching sort of figurehead manager, if you know what yeah. I mean. Or than Dean Smith. <laughs> oh, here he goes again. By the way, Darren, there's two things you need to re- to, to realise. He's an out-and-out Manchester United fan, which means that one day he's absolutely convinced that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the second coming and the next day he's reaching around trying to find Maurizio Pochettino's phone number. And the second thing is, is him and Dean Smith had a falling out. Okay. And what was it over there, Alex? You do want to tell us? He was just being particularly facetious in a post-match interview after a defeat at Watford. Didn't sit well. Okay. <laughs> and, and that, Look how serious he is about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like Jerry Springer. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, yeah, sorry. We were talking about uh, well-coached teams. Go for it. No, I, I think you're absolutely right about that, about the teams where it really is down to organisation and managers managing to make the most of the sum of the parts. And I think that is a really good point that some of the lesser celebrated managers who have teams willing to work for them and have players who are committed could well have an advantage in this period over the teams that maybe have one or two luxury players who might not like it when the going gets tough. So this could well be a little bit of a leveller during this period. Um, Okay, Um, it's happening. It's coming back. It is only six days away as we sit here now. So excited! Yes, indeed we are. And uh, La Liga is also back. And um, as a result of that, we thought we'd better dip into it and find out what's happening. Uh, Because the first game that starts us off is the Seville Derby. Um, Here's Colin Miller, who's booked the frying pan of Spain, explains the fierce nature of that derby and tells us what to expect. Within Spanish football itself, and whenever you look toward what game would you really want to attend as a fan, just as a neutral, and you want to soak in the atmosphere and experience of a match day, the Seville Derby is really unbeatable because you've essentially got a 60,000 full-seater stadium full of you know season ticket holders of people who live in the city and this is a derby that defies families right down the middle Seville is is genuinely a city where the rivalry it's 50-50 between the two clubs and because you're surrounded by it because it means so much to, to the fans 
it, it, it's it's like a personal thing and they, they get so involved in the matches and obviously this isn't the fault of clubs like Barcelona or Madrid or elite clubs but a lot of the match days tend to be dominated by a lot of football tourism you know you have a lot the, the experience in the match day atmosphere does suffer inevitably as a result of that and Maybe the Seville Derby will eventually go that way too, but as things stand and from the history of the, of the match itself, it, it's been unbeatable in terms of the, the rivalry that it has and the authenticity that the fans have as well. It is the flagship game of the return of La Liga this weekend. Just give us some context behind the match itself. Sevilla third in the table. How much would Betis love to dent their hopes of a Champions League place? Yeah, Sevilla have had a, have had a good season. Um, the sporting director, Monchi, returned to the club last summer. He essentially rejuvenated the entire squad, brought in 15 new players. Yes, they're third, but there's a lot of there's a lot of scope for that to change quite quickly. There's only two points between third and sixth, which is where Atletico de Madrid are. And obviously we know what their ambitions will be this season. So it's going to be a very tight race um, coming into the end of the season. Betis, uh, on the other hand, probably underwhelmed a bit. They're sitting mid-table, but in the match before the break, they beat Real Madrid 2-1. So we know what they can do. We know there's not a lot between these two sides. And that's almost what makes the game... It's always, it's always captivating in that aspect as well. There's never a clear favourite. And especially with the fact that, yes, Sevilla have home advantage, but there's no fans at this mm. game, which is going to be, it's going to be strange. You know, this is, a, this is always a spectacle. The fans add so much to this match, more so than any other. So it's going to be really interesting to see what impact that has on the game itself and how it could affect players psychologically. It's going to be, but these games are always good. They're always free-flowing. They always... Both teams have an attacking mentality and that always makes for a great spectacle for, for any neutrals. We're such flirts on this podcast, we aren't are. we? We, we are. We spent the last month banging on about our love for the Bundesliga and Hertha Berlin. They don't get a mention this week. <laughs> it's all about Spain. <laughs> I know we're terrible Darren turns up and all of a sudden we're like Darren's here let's make sure we're nice to Darren and forget forget about the Bundesliga the Bundesliga was our old love Um, the first thing I, I, you know, after after agreeing for Darren to come on the podcast, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm in for it. I'm up for it." Uh, Lucy, our producer, the first thing she said was, "Oh my God, he's got a lovely voice." <laughs> See, he's done you there. <laughs> it's true, Lucy, isn't it? Isn't it? I've been dropped right in it there. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> Dear, oh dear. Uh, right, uh, live commentary of the Bundesliga is back on TalkSport 2 this weekend. We're all getting ready for game day, coming back a week on Saturday when we've got four live commentaries for you, starting with Watford against Leicester at 12.30. My thanks to Darren Lewis and Alex Crook. The game day pod returns next Tuesday. Don't miss it, as we will have Billy Sharp and Theo Walcott on the show, plus an essential guide to the Premier League restart. Stay safe. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com. 18 plus. Be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply.